from a federal basis, that's where we are 50 years later. Anybody who grows, processes, sells, purchases marijuana, even in California, even in Colorado, even in New Jersey in a couple months is breaking the federal law. And the proceeds of those sales is considered money laundering. So you have this dynamic where the federal government still treats it as illegal and there are thriving businesses in various states and around the country. And so there's a tension constantly in terms of what's going on at the federal level versus what's going on at the local level. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is James Rieger, partner at Tannenbaum, Hilpern, Syracuse, and Histrit. He's also the founder and chair of its Cannabis Industry Practice Group. James has over 25 years' experience with a broad corporate and securities law practice with a focus on the cannabis industry. He is the current chairman of the Mergers and Acquisitions Committee of the Business Law Section of the New York State Bar Association. James is a contributor to Bloomberg Law's Cannabis Page and is a frequent lecturer and author on cannabis-related matters. Listen in as James shares his views on the cannabis space and where it is headed. There has been quite a bit discussed on this topic, and you'll be interested to hear some of the legal hurdles that face this relatively new industry. Well, hello, buddy. Larry Sprung here, and I have James Rieger, partner at Tannenbaum, Helpern, Syracuse, and Histrit. He's also the founder and chair of its Cannabis Industry Practice Group, something we've been hearing a lot about in the news recently. And welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me, Larry. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. So listen, I want the listeners to understand who you are and where you came from. So can you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming partner at Tannenbaum, Helpern, Syracuse, and Histrit? Sure. I've spent about half my career in two different places, uh, half at Tannenbaum and half at what was a high-quality mid-sized firm in New York that had merged with a Washington, D.C. firm and then had a bit of scale. And I was there. I was a corporate generalist. I worked on, took a number of life sciences companies public in their IPOs, did uh, public and private M&A, did some activist and hostile type public company work, very broad-based corporate background. And uh, I was counsel there. And the politics of the firm were such that it wasn't clear to me that I was going to be a partner anytime soon. And we were going through an interesting point in the life of the firm. The powers that be decided in New York and Washington that the merger they had done six or seven years earlier hadn't really worked out. And we were, all of us in New York were in the process of effectively resigning and moving to a much bigger firm, Deckert, a Philadelphia-based firm with offices around the world. And at that time, somebody from my office just uh, said, hey, I got this call from a headhunter partner at a high quality mid-sized firm in New York. You don't need to have any business and I'm too junior for it. I thought of you. And I said to myself, those kind of jobs don't really exist. Everybody wants to have a million dollars of business or more. And the role I played at my firm at that time was to come in and put your head down and work hard and be available. And we weren't a networking centric firm. We weren't a marketing centric firm. We had institutional and long standing clients and I interviewed with Tannenbaum and really hit it off with the folks there and saw that it was a unique opportunity for me to take my career in a different direction. They had a financial services, very active financial services practice. They were one of the early leaders 
investors and informing hedge funds. And I found that interesting. So I came in really to be a partner in three, at the time, three different groups, the financial services group, the corporate group, and they had a separate corporate securities group. So it's been a terrific move for me. And I think this month, it's about 15 years for me there. So it's been wow. nice. That's fantastic. And I think one of the nuggets that I took out from your story is something we talk about all the time on this show, which is how networking and your network equals your net worth. And right here is a great example where somebody you know who had an opportunity wasn't a good fit for them. And had it not been for them, who knows where you would be today, because that created a great opportunity for you and a good fit for Tannenbaum, Helper, and Syracuse as well in history. So what a great story and great point of networking and how it actually works really well. Yeah. Yeah. You're in an interesting field. You're in cannabis industry practice group. You're the head, the founder, and the chair of the group there at the firm. When you went to law school and were working to become an attorney, did you ever think you'd have a focus in the cannabis space? You know, that's a funny question. I mean, think about how the, how much the world has changed since then, right? I think I'm a little bit older than you. I graduated from college in 88. I graduated from law school in 91. The president, when I was graduating from college, was Ronald Reagan. If you remember Nancy Reagan and all those pieces that comprise the war on drugs, you know, yep. this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. <laughs> it was a really, really different world and place. Nobody ever heard of CBD back then. Marijuana was something that was truly underground. I think it was not till 1996 that California became the first state that allowed medical cannabis use. So it was really far removed from anybody thinking about that as a career path or anything like that. It was truly, it was the land of drug dealers then who had anything to do with the distribution and sale of cannabis. And that that is a legitimate business was not in anyone's mind. Yeah. And that's crazy because I don't think many people realize that even the medical use in California dates back all the way back to 1996. We're in this time frame now where things are moving a lot more quickly in that space than they had ever before. But I don't think really many people realize that it had been legal for medical reasons even way back when. Yeah, no, it's been a while. You know, the Western states certainly led in terms of medical and then they led in terms of recreational or adult use. So uh, it's starting to move across the country and move to the east for sure. Yeah. So you talk about how this is spreading now as far as uses from medical to recreational. Can you give us from your perspective a 10,000 foot view of what you think is going on in the industry today and where you think it's going to end up going? Sure. First of all, I feel very blessed and lucky that I can play even a small part in the industry. It's a fascinating industry. It moves at lightning speed. Rules change all the time. New entrants into the space. So what you've got going on right now is you've got a bit of a scramble for licenses and market share, right? So as you probably know, Canada made cannabis use federally legal a couple of years ago, and people were very excited about that. It turns out Canada is a fairly sleepy market. Canada has the same amount of people as California has. And California, uh, Canada put some some sort of odd packaging and labeling requirements on cannabis, and they didn't have enough stores. And so it was a pretty slow rollout. Those companies up there that all race to go public in Canada have sort of performed you know, poorly, consistently missed earnings estimates and things like that. And the excitement in the industry now is here in the United States. So we have these companies called MSOs, multi-state operators. That means they're not simply working with licenses in one state, but they're in multiple states. And so those companies are sort of in a race 
to gain scale, to gain licenses across many different states, and to gain foothold to have operations in those states. Branding, for better or for worse, branding is not really a, a big thing right now in cannabis. The rules and the way they work, you can't get a federal trademark that relates to marijuana. So there's been some brands on the West Coast that have started to become known, but it's hard to bring those. When you don't have interstate commerce and you've got essentially 30 different markets or 35 different markets across the United States where you've got to grow cannabis in that state process, that state and sell it in that state, and you can't move it from state to state, it's a little hard to establish national brands at this point. So there's a tug of war between companies really trying to get a massive footprint so that they're a survivor in this thing as the laws maybe change in the future, legalization maybe happens on the federal basis. And some of these bigger consumer packaged good companies or big tobacco or big alcohol move into the space. The current entrants, the MSOs want to make sure that they're the companies that get bought for huge premiums or they're the survivors. Right. You kind of alluded to and touched on it a moment ago. For those that may not be aware, why is the cannabis industry such a controversial one from a legal perspective? And I I think you hinted towards it or even maybe mentioned it, but why is it such an interesting phenomenon? Right. So you may have heard New Jersey, they had a ballot initiative in the fall, as did five other states. They passed adult use cannabis legalization. So that means as the rules get written and the regulations get written in New Jersey, there'll be stores open where any adult could go in and buy it. You don't need a medical card. You don't need a recommendation from your doctor. You could just go buy it like you go into a liquor store. And there's 16 states like that in the United States. And there's like another, there's 35 that have medical programs. But the federal government doesn't recognize it as legal. It's a controlled substance. It's a Schedule One controlled substance. It's part of, uh, you know, the term gets used a lot, the war on drugs. In 1970 or something, Richard Nixon decided that he wanted to be reelected and he wanted uh, black and brown people to not be able to vote. He wanted hippies who wouldn't vote for him to not be able to vote. And he demonized marijuana and it allowed... Uh, It gave an excuse to break up parties and throw people in jail and take away their rights. And that's the, from a federal basis, that's where we are 50 years later, right? Anybody who grows, processes, sells, purchases marijuana, even in California, even in Colorado, even in New Jersey in a couple months is breaking the federal law. And the proceeds of those sales is considered money laundering. So you have this dynamic where the federal government still treats it as illegal And there are thriving hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollar businesses in various states and around the country. And so there's a tension constantly in terms of what's going on at the federal level versus what's going on at the local level. There's a industry publication I subscribe to called Marijuana Moment, and they've got 859 bills they're tracking across the country from federal to across the 50 states. 859 pieces of cannabis legislation are being tracked right now, which is just staggering. And it shows you how tough it is to be in this business if you have to worry about federal illegality and then complying with, if you're an MSO and you're in 14 states, you've got to comply with 14 different sets of rules. And they are often different. Right. So, I mean, in essence, what you're saying is if the federal government wanted to come in and shut this down for whatever reason, if there were some kind of mandate for them to do so, in your view, would they have the ability to do that, to just put an end to this if they wanted to? They would have the ability if they wanted to. Now, thankfully for the industry, various things have happened over the years that have made that less and less and less likely, right? I mean, if you think about it, right, William Barr was no fan of the industry. He tried to walk back some of the things that prior attorneys generals have done. So there was something called the Cole Memo a number of years ago that basically said, 
breaking up or harassing state legal medical cannabis companies is not a priority of the Department of Justice. And thankfully for the industry, there's been an appropriations rider to the spending bill every year at the federal level for a number of years that that has basically prohibited the Department of Justice from spending their funds to prosecute state compliant cannabis businesses. So the risk is much more theoretical than actual. And I think everybody believes with the blue wave that came in in the, in the fall and the Senate and the presidency going to the Democrats that the momentum is behind further expansion of federal rules and potentially, you know, decriminalization and full legalization in interstate commerce down the road. So the risk becomes less and less likely, you know, with each passing day, frankly. Yeah, so that's interesting. So if they're considered by the federal government, as you mentioned earlier, the proceeds are considered money laundering and things of that nature. How does this affect the ability for these companies, these MSOs, to use banks and the banking system? They're probably, there's a lot of machinery and equipment involved with growing, for example. So I would imagine there's a need for financing that equipment. How does this all affect the illegality from a federal standpoint? And how does that affect these companies on those levels just to operate their daily businesses? It makes it incredibly tough. So the Bank Secrecy Act requires something called suspicious activity reports. A suspicious activity report is something a bank has to do anytime they receive a payment that they think is related to marijuana effectively. So if just, you know, XYZ Bank was banking an MSO, every time payroll was processed, every time an invoice was paid, every time money came in from a vendor, they'd be filling out a suspicious activity report. So what you have is you have essentially there's zero banks that you've ever heard of that bank the cannabis industry. There's in theory, or I've heard numbers like there's 500 and something banks or credit unions that that bank them. But I think that there's probably 100 or 150 that are really active and there's a couple that dabble in it. So if you're a tiny credit union somewhere struggling to gain assets, you might be willing to hire the staff that's needed and go through the pain of filing the suspicious activity reports to bank a cannabis business, but you have no banks with scale really. And so you really can't go get a more, you want to open a retail, buy a retail store, or you want to you know, get a cultivation or grow facility and you want to get a mortgage. You're not going to a bank and getting a mortgage at 6% interest for that. You're going to a specialized fund or a REIT that deals with cannabis companies and charges a cannabis premium. There's a lot of cannabis premiums and, you know, all throughout the, the ecosystem. And so you want to go get a mortgage on a cannabis cultivation facility, you're going to pay 13, 14, 15% if you can find it. We know people who do those and you can find them, but the banking relationships are incredibly difficult to come by. You know, I have a client who's a very prominent fund in the private fund in the cannabis business. And he's always said to me, you can name drop me whenever you want in your networking, but one thing you can't do is tell people who I bank with because we can't afford to lose that relationship. And so he won't even share with me who he banks with. It's just proprietary. Wow. So from what you're saying, it seems like it's something that can be done. There are just extra hurdles that the banks would need to go through in order to bank these businesses. So is it safe to say that the larger banks, because they have arguably would have the resources to do this if they want, probably more so than these smaller niche banks you're mentioning, is it that they just don't want to go down that route because they don't want to open up the Pandora's box to the rest of their company and the rest of their business lines? I think that's right. I think that 
the industry is evolving. The industry is still somewhat on the small side. It's going to gain a lot of scale over time, but there hasn't been historically enough money in it for the major money center banks to think that they want to go through the pain and the possible reputational risk of being involved in the industry. And so they just haven't. There's something called the Safe Banking Act, which was just reintroduced in Congress last week, which would effectively say the Fed or any other regulatory body can't levy a fine or a sanction or anything like that on any bank solely because they're involved in the cannabis industry. And the thinking being that that would turn the spigot a little bit to allow some of these bigger, at least regional banks, if not the major money center banks, to be interested in banking the industry. Hmm. So what do you think from a legislative standpoint? It seems like they're loosening things up, but they still haven't gone that full route as far as saying, hey, this is good to go. It's legal. So do you think it's just a matter of they're taking these baby steps to see how it's being received by the general public before they kind of make that step? Or is it just a process that really is going to take that long to kind of move in that direction to actually happen? Yeah, I don't know. As I said, the, the blue wave got people thinking, and you saw it in the stocks, right? The stocks of the MSOs really, really took off in the fourth quarter of 2020 and early this year with the thinking that federal change and federal legalization is afoot. And then you see on the weekend, it comes out that a number of White House staffers were forced to resign because in the past they used marijuana. <laughs> that doesn't sound to me like the Biden administration is pushing anytime soon for federal legalization, right? I mean, that cuts counter to that. So right. things like the Safe Banking Act, which to me seems non-controversial, right? I mean, one of the problems with the banking issue today is that a lot of things are done in cash. Employees at some of these companies are paid in cash. Companies drive a truck filled of cash to the IRS to pay their taxes. The IRS has had to build like cash rooms in various places because there's so much cash coming in. That is not safe, right? I mean, if you're talking about trying to rid the country of organized crime and organized crime with drugs, if you were organized crime, wouldn't you target one of these big movements of cash somewhere? Right. So there's a safety factor in passing banking reform. Presumably, you'll get better for compliance with people paying taxes if they can do so by wiring money through the Fed wire system. You really need credit cards as well, too. I mean, that you know, the Safe Banking Act would help usher in use of credit cards. I mean, the fraud that's going on in the in the industry in the last couple of years related to credit cards is amazing. I mean, somebody who was involved in a distribution type network, electronic distribution network, just pled guilty to essentially creating like hundreds of shell companies that they would actually, so that their company was taking credit cards and no one else's was, and no one could understand it, right? What they were doing was they created hundreds of shell companies that they would say, this isn't for buying cannabis. This is XYZ scuba company. This is for scuba equipment, or this is for dry cleaning or things <laughs> like that. And the person's going to go to jail for that. There's no real shortcuts around this, you need to have a robust compliance group. So that's interesting because so these companies are not allowed or supposed to be taking credit cards. Is that, no. my, is that my understanding? That's exactly right. Huh. But some of them were creating unique structures in order to do so, in order to keep the business flowing and not turn people away who didn't have cash. Right. Wow. Interesting. So you're an attorney, right? So this is a space that you're operating in. You've talked to us about some of the pitfalls and things that these companies, these MSOs have to be aware of in the industry. So you as an attorney, what's your involvement with those in the cannabis space? How do you get involved? Who are you working with? And how do you help them? It's interesting because of the federal illegality 
thankfully for us, some of our larger competitors, right, the thousand lawyer law firms, the law firm that I would have worked for if I hadn't changed jobs, they have not been involved in the industry. We've kind of jumped in with both feet. So as I said, we've historically done a lot of fund formation work, private investment funds, uh, hedge funds, venture capital funds, private equity funds. So we do a lot on the cannabis side on, on private fund formation. We do their SEC reporting and compliance advisory work there. Then when they raise capital and they have it in their fund, I do their venture capital type transactions. So they might be investing in a private company, might be a convertible note round, might be series A, series B type round. And then we work with other participants in the industry itself. So we could work with an MSO to acquire their cultivation facility. We work on regulatory matters. We do mergers and acquisitions, any kind of financing. I've done some significant loans in the cannabis space. And which which raise interesting questions on collateral and legality and other things like that. And we do a lot of work with beverage companies as well, too. So we're involved in the CBD side with CBD-based beverages and, and other regulatory matters and licensing. I mean, for the most part, what you describe is what a normal everyday corporate attorney would work on with the businesses that they operated, operate with and, and for. You're just doing it for those in the cannabis space, really. That's right. And you need a strong overlay of the regulatory knowledge in order to navigate the pitfalls in the industry. Right. I mean, how similar is it to like the alcohol industry? Because obviously there, there are some pitfalls. Also, you have some legislation or laws, I guess, that prohibit you from selling cross-border in states as well. Is it somewhat similar to the liquor industry as well? It's somewhat similar to it. Some people think that the cannabis industry may involve in a liquor type licensing and regulatory format where maybe you have different tiers. You know, you have a producer, you have a wholesaler and you have a retailer. Cannabis historically has not been in that mold, but more and more states that are legalizing seem to be focused on social equity, social justice, making sure that the people who are most impacted by the war on drugs, black and brown communities, communities with high poverty rates, high incarceration rates, that those people can participate in the industry and it's not all big business. So that's some of what's going on in the industry as well, too. Now, something that I've always thought to some degree was that the alcohol and tobacco industry, and I'm curious to see what you think about it, has had some impact on cannabis not rising, having the impact that it may have because they're fearful of the cannabis industry taking market share from those industries for various reasons. In your view, do you think that the alcohol and tobacco industry have had an impact on keeping the cannabis industry from becoming more prolific? I think you're exactly right. I think not only that, you're missing one big industry group as well, too, and that's big pharma. If you think about it, right, if you have to go through a clinical trial for over five, seven, eight years and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to have a small molecule drug or biotech drug, what have you, that's uh, addressed at curing a disease or a pain condition or something like that, you don't want people being able to go into a retail store and spend $20 and get something that they may view as having the same type of pain relief, aid with sleep, anxiety, and things like that. So I think there's a lot of lobbying that goes on behind the scenes from those companies and including, you know, big alcohol and, and big tobacco to sort of keep cannabis in its place as something that's hamstrung and is a hard business to do. Some of the companies for sure are starting to take toeholds in the industry. British American Tobacco the other day spent $175 million to 
by 19.9% of one of the Canadian licensed producers. Mm -hmm. And so those companies are starting to make inroads into the industry, but there's very few of them that have jumped in with both feet. I think I think you're right. I think they're comfortable. They love selling the hundreds of millions of cases of spiked seltzer and beer right. that they sell, and they don't necessarily want to lose market share. I mean, you do see there are some Wall Street reports that they're at on the industry that show things like binge drinking drops tremendously in states that have adult use recreational cannabis programs after they come in. Overall volumes of liquor and alcohol products drop after adult use cannabis programs come in. So I think you're exactly on the right path there. So what are hurdles if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm looking to get involved in the legal cannabis business? What are the top three hurdles that I should be aware of before kind of making my way into that business line? Yeah, there's so many. I don't even know where to start. (laughs) You've got to have the right team around you. You've got to have a robust licensing and regulatory team, right? First, you've got to focus on where you're going to operate, what the rules are, where you're operating. Taxes are a big one. This industry gets hammered with taxes. There's something called 280E, which means that cannabis companies cannot deduct anything other than the cost of goods sold. So they're paying effectively a much higher tax rate than somebody who's selling beer or somebody who's making widgets. And some people don't really understand that. They don't get their heads around that. They don't have the right accountant who knows how to navigate those things. So for instance, we tell people, LLCs are all the rage these days, right? But we tell people don't form an LLC for a cannabis business. The reason is a C-Corp, right? is essentially a blocker. If you mm-hmm. messed up your tax, and 280, you can take a lot of different positions on how you're reporting your taxes and what you're paying taxes on. If you mess it up and you have a C-Corp, the worst thing that happens is that C-Corp is going to have a huge tax bill and theoretically may have to declare bankruptcy or cease operations or whatever. If you're operating a cannabis business as an LLC, it's a pass-through entity. So the government is going to look right through the human beings who own that entity and say, you owe me those taxes that you took the inappropriate position on in your tax returns. And now I'm going to go get a levy on your house and things like that and ruin your life. So it's a tricky industry to navigate on many, many levels. And just staying on top of the changing nature of it and the changing rules is uh, very difficult as well, too, for companies. Are certain states much more liberal and easier to work in than others, or are they pretty much adopting very similar rules and regs across the board? No, they're not. They're very dissimilar. So Oklahoma, for instance, use an extreme example that has a medical marijuana program that's only a couple of years old. It's a small state. It's a farming state. They've given out 2,500 licenses and they charge people like 100 bucks, 200 bucks for a license if you want to grow medical marijuana there. A state like New York, New Jersey, Illinois, they're going to have a couple dozen licenses and they're going to charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for those licenses. So it's really different from state to state. So how can people or businesses, if they're looking to invest in the space safely and not cause legal harm to themselves, right, because of the dichotomy between the federal and the states, are there steps an investor should take in order to vet a cannabis business before they kind of dive in with two feet? What should they be looking at? It's tough, right? I mean, there's not a lot of great investable products in the space. There are a handful of ETFs and you've got to know what you're investing in though, right? So NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, because of the federal illegality, will not list a business or an ETF that is a plant touching business. So they're only going to list a company that's making lighting for the industry or something ancillary to the growing and handling and touching of cannabis. And so- Which by the way, is probably not a bad way to have access to the industry in a legal way, I guess, right? Because it's not illegal to make lights. (laughs) That's exactly right. And then 
You can invest, obviously, in plant-touching businesses in certain brokerage accounts. There's a company I wanted to buy some shares of that I could not invest in a brokerage account that was connected to a major money center bank. And I I could invest in in a brokerage account that it was a standalone, independent, high-quality, mid-sized broker. So you've got to kind of do your homework, know what you want to invest in. And then if you're investing in individual companies on the stock exchange, you know, the balance sheet and the management and who is behind them? Is there a deep pocket behind them somewhere who was going to help them through the dark times? Mid-2019 through mid-2020 was a very dark time for the industry. The stock prices really got decimated. Money was not available. The terms on capital raises or debt facilities were horrible when you could find the money. And thankfully now uh, the stock prices are up. As I said, the blue wave and people getting excited about possible federal legalization someday have, have really sent the stocks to the races. But But doing your homework, understanding what it is that they have. There's a company, I'm not going to mention a name, but it was the kind of company you saw in the New York Times Magazine section a couple of years ago. It was very popular as a West Coast brand. They had a huge store in New York and they were an incredibly poorly run company. They had regulatory and licensing problems. They had management problems. And that company ended up issuing like a billion shares to pay vendors and things. And the (laughs) stock price is is 20 cents and they get delisted from the exchange and they're doing forced sales of of assets. So everybody in the industry is not going to be a survivor for sure. And finding a a strong management team and, and a strong balance sheet with strong assets, you know, you can kind of look at where are they licensed in what states? Does that state seem promising to you? You know, if you're, if, as I said, if you're growing medical marijuana in Oklahoma and there's 2,400 other people doing it right. and it's a tiny state and you can only sell it to residents of Oklahoma, it doesn't sound like a terribly good business. But some of the companies that are working in Florida have done terrifically. You know, there's so many older people who move there and an older population and it's very easy to get a medical card and people really spend their money on that as an alternative to, uh, as an alternative to alcohol and, and other things. Yeah. So I think it's like anything else. You have to do your due diligence. You have to know and you even have to take probably a little further deep dive just because of the complexities involved. Me personally, I've been looking at these things for a while and we've had clients call up and ask about them. And my sense is it's so difficult because there are so many out there and there hasn't been a true leader because it's so fragmented that it's really difficult to tell who's going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years and who's not. So that's a difficult chore. And like you said, I think you probably have to do a little deeper dive than you ordinarily would on a regular business because of the complexities involved with this one to make sure that you're making the right decision and probably be more diligent as far as being on top of your investment on a regular basis than maybe a company that has a very successful business that's been around for a very long time with a product that's not illegal in any way, shape, or form and was widely used. So I think that's going to be a concern and an issue. But what do you see coming down the pike for the industry? Do you see any major changes? I know you alluded to possibly this blue wave making a change on the federal level. Any other major changes you see coming down the pike that are going to impact this space in a big way? Yeah, there's a lot of things. One of them is I I alluded to it a little bit before was the the tension between whether this industry is going to be an industry of big businesses or there's going to be a huge social equity component of really smaller participants in it. So some of the states that have legalized in the, the last five to 10 years, most of them have done it through ballot initiatives where the people exert their will and say, we want to have an adult use, recreational use marijuana program. The states that try to do it through legislation are finding enormous conflict between 
on the one hand, trying to create a big industry that results in a lot of tax dollars and a lot of jobs, which would obviously favor big business, right? It would favor the existing medical companies in those states that are already vertically integrated, that grow the process that sell versus a lot of legislators around the country are focused more on righting the wrongs of the war on drugs. In New York last year, 94% of the people who were arrested for cannabis possession and sale use were people of color. Now, I can't imagine anyone thinks that 94% of the cannabis that was used in New York last year were from people of color, right. considering what proportion of the population they make up. So there are well-meaning legislators all over the country who are working on uh, adult use cannabis programs who are insistent that we're going to carve out a number of licenses for people who are adversely impacted by the war on drugs. And we don't really care about big business. And we don't really care about people turning this into a big industry and making a lot of money. We want to wipe away past convictions. We want to take a large proportion of the tax dollars and create grants, loans, training, subsidize social equity licenses for folks who want to have a small operation, on-premise cannabis consumption. They want to have a lounge. So that is really something that's keeping the industry from sort of taking off right now is this real tension between whether it's supposed to be a big business. There's a great belief among people in the industry that the business is too much of a bunch of white guys in suits. Right. And really, how do you get other folks involved in the industry? So that's one big theme. And then the other one hanging out there is when and if there is some loosening of federal rules, who's going to be the big winners here? Is it going to be, like you said, big alcohol, big tobacco, big pharma? Are they going to move in with massive dollars and buy up the existing successful operators? And then, then it's just another division, another branch of their company. Or are we going to see independent brands that come out of the West Coast or come out of Colorado or some of these other companies that are doing such good work in the space now become very successful? Will you have sort of a craft Will there be like a craft beer industry of this where you have smaller folks who concentrate on doing a certain thing well and don't necessarily care about selling tons and tons of it, but but do it very well? So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the space, part of a cannabis hemp networking association of New York and kind of try to tell my fellow networking participants, you know, almost every month when we meet that we're all really lucky to be in the space and be in such a dynamic, fast moving, evolving space. It's, you know, I started working in 91 and I was on the East Coast. So the dawn of the internet was really more of a West Coast thing. And I kind of missed that. And I kind of feel like this is my <laughs> second go around for an opportunity to do the one of these unique once in a lifetime type type participation in industry. I feel very blessed. Yeah, I think you're right on. And I think even even more so, unfortunately, a lot of times these things, they try to wait and figure out how to release these things or unwind these things in a perfect manner. And it never happens in a perfect manner. So however they end up moving forward, whether it's on a state basis or federal basis, we'll probably end up seeing some kind of change because typically things don't get done exactly right the first time around. So they'll probably figure it out, release it, fix it, and then there'll be multiple iterations of it. And I like your analogy to the craft beer industry, because that might be the method by which you see the big business get involved and as well as those smaller parties have an ability to enter the marketplace as well in their local areas. So that might be the kind of uh, industry that we look to and they kind of model to some degree. So let me just say one more thing too. Legalization in the Northeast is also a huge theme in the industry, right? In New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, they all have either adopted or are in the planning to adopt shortly adult use programs. And that could be a tipping point where 
You've now got a majority, a vast majority of the country that's under adult use programs. And that may be the kind of thing as well, too, that gets things like credit cards and banking through because there's just so many folks who now can participate in the industry and can go out and buy the product they want to buy. And the fact that everyone's doing it in cash and how difficult the industry is to operate I, may become untenable. And you may see somebody like Visa or MasterCard even stand up and say, hey, this is really crazy. We need to be able to be part of this payment system. <laughs> right. Again, like you said, it's also a safety issue for the people working at and running these companies because it's great to have the cash, but it's uh, liability in terms of safety for everybody that's there. So that's got to be thought of as as well. So yeah, listen, I think you're involved in a in a very interesting time and in a very interesting industry, and it's going to be very interesting and telling to see how things unravel and unfold over the years to come. And, you know, it'll be interesting 10 years from now to listen to this episode and see where we are now versus where we were then, meaning today. So it's nice to have this snapshot in a moment of time here in 2021, and we'll see how things unfold. So James, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and we end every show asking each one of our our guests the same question, and that is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I rode my Peloton. Did you from, take that from me? No. Did, oh, because that's did, my answer a Is lot that of right? Time. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> from 25 to 40, I kind of sat around and didn't really exercise and put on a couple of pounds like most people do. And then at 40, I decided to start exercising. And unlike many people who use their exercise equipment as a coat rack, I, I use mine I use something, whether it's a weight stack machine or running outside or a Peloton, like, you know, 29 out of every 30 days. So to me, it, it leads to better energy throughout the day and you're focused and I, I can't imagine not doing it. It's a great way to start the day. Awesome. So who's your go-to instructor? Kendall Tool. Okay. All right. Have you done the Metallica ride yet? That's I have. the question. Yeah. I that's have. a killer that's a, ride, That's right? a hard one. That's a that's hard a one. That's definitely yeah. a hard one. Yeah. Who's your go-to instructor? You know what? I don't really have a go-to. Literally, when I hop on the bike and I take a look, the first thing is how much time am I going to commit? I usually right. do a 30 or 45 minutes. And then the second thing is I look at the music. To me, if I have a lot of stress, I'll do an EDM ride because I yep. just want to pound it out or something like that. Or a Metallica ride if I want something a little bit easier because I did an EDM ride three days in a row, I'll do more of a classic rock ride to take it easy. But yeah, I have a very similar story to you. I didn't do much exercise. And then I got my Peloton about two and a half years ago, and I ride on average about five, six days a week. So wow. it's gotten me active, which is fantastic. And it doesn't hold clothes very long, you know, it's <laughs> just, just for a couple hours in between rides. So I thank you for sharing that. And I agree, it's a great way to start the day. If people want to learn more about you or find you, we'll have all this information in the show notes. Where's the best and easiest way that they can find you? Yeah, so my firm's website, THSH.com, like Tom Harry, Sam Harry.com, and you'll see a bio uh, for me with some, you know, representative transactions and things like that. And I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn as well, too. James Rieger, R I E G E R, at LinkedIn. Awesome, James. It's been a pleasure having you, and I'm interested to see where the industry goes. And I'm glad that you're involved in it and make it a great day. Thanks a lot. I want to thank James Rieger for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. The cannabis industry is relatively new and growing quickly. The fact that cannabis is illegal on the federal level, but states are deeming it legal within their borders, makes for an interesting legal conversation, which James is helping to shape. James is a key person in helping companies that are in or looking to join the industry and stay compliant while doing it. 
James can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.